Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Arnold Lustiger about his new book, Before Hashem, You Shall Be Purified, Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik on the Days of Awe, published by Orr Publishing in 2022. Between the late 1950s through 1980, Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik, the Rav, annually delivered a two- to four-hour lecture in Yiddish between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to the Rabbinical Assembly of America on the topic of repentance and the days of awe. This expanded volume contains summaries of the Dershot, these addresses that the, the Rav delivered from 1973 through 1975, and includes two additional um, lectures delivered and presented in 1964 and 1966. There are also links to free online audios and videos of the Rav presented presenting many of these same repentance lectures in Yiddish, subtitled in English by Dr. Lissiger. With the appearance of this volume, one can read the summaries and then experience the Rev's dramatic delivery of these extraordinary discourses. Dr. Lissiger, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Really an honor to be interviewed by you. I, I appreciate that. I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to high school at the Talmudical Yeshiva Philadelphia, and I graduated in 1971. Uh, the Talmudical Yeshiva Philadelphia, I guess you could say, I guess you could, you could say that it's a, as, as they would say in, the, uh, in our community, a right-wing yeshiva. And um, Rabbi Soloveitchik really wasn't um, discussed much there. And there were other rabbis that they, uh, that they touted much more highly. Um, after I graduated yeshiva, after I graduated high school, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia, and um, I was studying materials engineering. Now, two years later, in 1973, I was a sophomore at Drexel, and uh, I used to go to the University of Pennsylvania, the Hillel at the University of Pennsylvania, which is right next door to Drexel, and um, I used to eat lunch there. I used to hang out there. Uh, in that year, in 1973, the Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik, was invited to deliver a faculty colloquium at the University of Pennsylvania for the, I believe it was the sociology department. I was not at that time familiar with the Rav, as I mentioned earlier, and I went to hear the lecture without any real expectations. In that lecture, the Rav explained the idea behind juxtaposing the themes of Geula and Tefillah, redemption and prayer, uh, which is a basic concept in, in halacha, in Jewish law, uh, regarding um, the um, progression of the Shmona Esrei. Um, he interrelated halacha, psychology, and Platonic ontology. I'd never heard any shir or, lect- or lecture remotely like it. So upon leaving the lecture hall, I asked myself why it had taken me so long to encounter this extraordinary figure and why I had not come across him or his writings earlier. In the summer of 1975, I had been continued my undergraduate uh, uh, studies in materials engineering. I worked as an intern at a U.S. government munitions development facility, where my primary job function was to generate X-ray diffraction patterns 
to characterize bazooka shells. Um, it was at that time that the Rav's classic series of lectures on tshuva, entitled Al HaTshuva, On Repentance, was published. Um, he, the, it summarized the Rav's annual tshuva dreshes between 1966 and 1972. So while the x-ray machine was doing its thing, I had a long time to study this book. I was engrossed. Uh, that, more than anything, hooked me on the Rav. Over 20 years later, I, I, I moved out of town. I moved, back, I moved to New Jersey. I uh, discovered the website of a fellow named Melton Nordlicht, who sold hundreds of cassette tapes. He collected hundreds of cassette tapes and, and, and duplicated them um, of the Rav's presentations in both Yiddish and English from the 1950s to the 1980s, not only Chubadrushas, but uh, many, many, many other uh, lectures, public lectures. After listening to the tapes, it became clear to me which drushos were included in Alachua and which had remained unpublished. Um, and I was waiting for somebody to uh, come up with a sequel to Alachua based on the subsequent Chubadrushas, and it, it wasn't happening. So although I was woefully unqualified, I decided to do it myself. I listened to the tapes and I wrote them up. And that's what uh, resulted in the book, Before Hashem You Shall Be Purified, that you mentioned at the beginning, which is in, which I published, as you mentioned, in 1998, essentially as a sequel to Al HaTshuva, based on the later Tshuva Drashas of the Rav. Now, to make a long story short, I didn't stop there. In 2001, I published another book called Drashot Rav, which summarized other lectures, which I felt were the most compelling, of the Rav that were not related to the High Holidays. In my next project, I went back to the High Holidays. I collected everything I could find from the Rav, both written and oral, including the tapes from Rabbi Nurlich that were not Shuvah Drashas, and wrote a running commentary on the Rosh Hashanah Machzer, on the Rosh Hashanah prayer book, and on the Yom Kippur prayer book. It's called the Machsar Mesorah Sarav. So that's two volumes. Um, and it's, thank God, it's quite popular in, in the community. I see many, many people using, using this particular uh, Machsar. My next project was a running commentary on the Chumash, on the five books of Moses, based on the Rav's teaching called the Chumash Mesorah Sarav, which I published between 2012 and 2018. And that has been come out in... Thank God has also been fairly popular. So last year, I took the original book, which had been out of print for, for, for since, since 2003, and I um, republished it. For like 19 years, it was out of print. Uh, and that's what we're referring to right now. So uh, that's that's my background. That's, uh, that's how I got involved. It's a, a lovely journey. One of the things that, that you mentioned was a previous publication of Rev Soloveitchik's um, repent- Lectures on Repentance, on Repentance, so published in Hebrew, published in English as well. I wonder if you can speak to the difference between, and you spoke a little bit, maybe expand more, between that work which is published, especially the English version, which was subsequently published, and what you've put together in, in the, both the original and the expanded version. You're asking, is there any, diff- is there any some substantive difference between Allah Tshuva and uh, Before Hashem? Yeah, um, exactly. I, I don't think so. I think it's more or less the same style. Uh, he did an excellent job, Rabbi Pinchas Peli and Alachuva. I could only hope to approach the uh, the quality of his prose 
But uh, substantively, the drushes were have not that not really changed between those years and the years that uh, that 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 I that I wrote up. Okay, I, I appreciate that. One of the other things that I'd love to to chat about and, and to better understand is the Rav's language. So the Rav spoke beautiful English. He spoke German. He spoke Yiddish. And the lectures which he gave, um, which you put together in English, were delivered in Yiddish, and and uh, the translation work needed to be done. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that translation work. How did you do the translation work? What were some of the challenges involved? How did that process go for you? Um, what's interesting about the Rose Yiddish, there's something, for me, it was relatively easy, and one part that was relatively difficult. Um, regarding specifically the Rav's um, language. Um, the, Rav, the Rav's Yiddish was, I would say, colloquially you could say was a yeshivish Yiddish. It was the typical Yiddish of a Litvak, a Lithuanian, with a, one with a Lithuanian background, who was using the Yiddish language as a means of conveying Torah, of, of, of learning. And Thank God I was familiar with that type of Yiddish through the yeshiva. So when the Rav engaged in that, I understood very, very clearly. It resonated very strongly with me. Um, he was, he was a, a master speaker who spoke a language that I, that I really, really appreciated. On the other hand, there were moments where the Rav would use philosophical terms or, or German terms, which I did not recognize. Very often I could, interestingly, I could just take the word and sound it out and look and look it up in a German, you know, dictionary. Wirklichkeit means reality. It's not a word that I, I encountered in Yeshiva. Um, but he used, the, he used the term and I, I looked it up and there were quite a few other terms like that. But eventually you, you get used to it and uh, you're able to do the, uh, the, the subtitling. The subtitling is just a really a, a, a program within YouTube, a very easy to use program. And uh, so that's, that's what I used. All right. That's great. And I, I studied Yiddish in university. So that's, for me, it's interesting to understand the different terms and to get a bit of a, a taste of, of what goes into the translation work. So I appreciate that for myself and hopefully the listeners will get something out of that as well. We mentioned that the lectures that are in this book are from a period of time, from, from different periods, different years. Were there any changes that, that the Rev made in, in his thought process? Were there any difference, sp- very specific differences over the years, or was he quite consistent in his, in his understanding of repentance and the themes therein? Well, I don't detect an evolution in the Rav's perspective per se over that time period, but I did detect something of an evolution in the intricacy of what is known as Lumdus. By Soloveitchik, these were very emotional, um, very often they were very emotional, Chuvadrashas. We can, well, we'll, hopefully we'll get into that later. Um, but they were always introduced, always introduced with a piece of, again, in the vernacular, brisker lumdus. When I refer to brisker lumdus, I'm talking about a specific method of halachic or Talmudic analysis, which is most often used, in, especially in, the, in this case, regarding um, the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. There would be analysis of certain 
portions of the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam, the the Rav would would concentrate on which seemed to be contradictions between various portions of the Rambam discussing the same topic and expand on those um, contradictions, explaining the contradiction and explaining I, using um, using this analysis method, resolving the contradiction, and then taking that using that as a takeoff point to to, to for his drasha for his homiletic discourse, which was meant to inspire the audience, and that more than anything is what uh, turned me on to the road. That that ability to take to go, to tread to segue from a dry halachic analysis to an emotional drusha. It was completely unique to me. I'd never seen or heard anything like it. And that's really why why I did this. So you mentioned that Maimonides was a big part of his of his canon, of, of starting from the from the Rambam from Maimonides and, and going into other sources. To what degree was the the biblical text a part of, of these lectures? So in Lonely Man of Faith, in some of his other posthumously published lectures, very much is going back to the Bible. So to what degree in, in, in these lectures does he go back to the Bible, or does he more focus on, let's say, rabbinic sources and Maimonides? Um, I would say he, he concentrated on the rabbinical sources. Um, he would use, very often, would use verses um, to buttress the point. But the but the the lectures were based on the Talmud. The lectures were based on Maimonides. He would quote a verse sometimes in a homiletic mode, or sometimes in a in a pshat mode, in a mode of um, the simple meaning, explaining the simple meaning of the Rambam or of the uh, of the Talmudic text that he was uh, studying. But uh, I don't think it ever really concentrated on the. Um, on on the biblical text per se. I appreciate that. I think it's important for our listeners to understand the, the different sources and the way that he focused on them. So that, that's a, a great clarification. We, we can jump a little bit into some of the content. So with these interviews, I like to try to give some depth, but allow people also to want more so they can go and, and get the book. So we can look at and maybe have just a, a taste of, of, what the, of what Ralph Salvatic is trying to do. We, we can look really at any of the, the different essays. We can then go more broad and, and discuss other things. But we can start where you want. Um, the first essay therein is the message of the shofar. There's also discussions of, of the, the slichos, the penitentiary um, um, services. So we can look at maybe one of those essays and you can give us just a, an idea of, of what's contained, the flow, the messages. I think that could be helpful for our audience. Okay. Uh, this recording is taking place three days before Rosh Hashanah. So I thought maybe I would uh, go into a little detail about the one, the, one of the first two chapters in the book, which deal with Rosh Hashanah. Um, okay, let's talk about the shofar. Um, I have here a Mishnah Torah a, uh, from the Rambam, the Rambam's uh, code of Jewish law, if you will. And he discusses the laws of shofar. And in those laws of shofar, in the, in the very first chapter, he gives what's he, what we, we might call as a headline. A headline, the first, um, just a introductory few words. What is this chapter or this set of chapters going to be about? And then he goes into great detail about the, 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 the mitzvah or the law that he's discussing itself. So in regard to shofar, it says, That is the, um, the headline. 
to listen to the voice of the shofar on the first of Tishrei. Now we go into the first mitzvah, now into the text. And it says, Mitzvah Sashay Shel Torah, it is a positive mitzvah of the Torah, Lishimoa Truas HaShofar, to hear the trua of the shofar, Berosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah. Now let's stop right there. There is a difference between the headline and the very first phrase in Mishnah Torah. In the headline, it's a lishmoa kol shofar, to hear the sound of the shofar, whereas in the Rambam itself, in the Mishnah Torah itself, lishmoa truas shofar, the trua, which is a specific type of sound of the shofar. And the other difference is it says be'echad betishrei, on the first day of Tishrei, which is the first day of the month of Tishrei, which is what Rosh Hashanah is. And in the text itself, it says be'rosh Hashanah. This is classic brisker question. Why the difference between the headline, these subtle differences, but real differences, why the difference between the headline and the text itself? So the Rav, again, using classic brisker analysis, says that the mitzvah of shofar has two components. There is a component of simply listening to the shofar. You have an obligation to hear these various sounds coming out of the shofar. And then there's a kiyum. There is a fulfillment. You have to have certain thing in mind. Something has to be in mind when you hear that sound. So now there's a misa. There is an action or there is a, uh, there's something involved in, there's the simple technical requirement. And then there is the, the kiyum, the fulfillment of the mitzvah. So now what the Rav wants to say is that the headline has to do with the technical requirement. The text itself deals, starts to deal with the, starts to deal with the um, fulfillment. So lishmoa kol shofar, you have an obligation to hear the sound of the shofar. When the Mishnah Torah says lishmoa trua shofar, to hear the trua, trua has a very specific connotation. Uh, Nachmanides goes into that. Trua is the sound of a trumpet in war. So now, what the Torah or what the what the, what the Rambam is trying to convey here is that this kiyum has something to do with war or crisis. There's a, there's there's something something very significant is going to be happening very soon. You are in crisis. The person is in crisis, and the shofar represents that crisis. Berosh Hashanah. Now, the, says, the, the headline says, Echad B'Tishrei, the first day of Tishrei. This is, again, deals with the, deals with the Maisa um, Mitzvah, the, the, just the act of the mitzvah. And you, it's a certain thing you have to hear on a certain day of the month, or a certain day of the year, and that is your fulfillment. That is that, I mean, that is your uh, requirement. But then the Kiyom HaMitzvah, the fulfillment of the mitzvah, has to do with Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment, okay? You are in crisis due to the day of judgment. Now, what is this Trua and what is this crisis? So now the Rav segues from Hilchos Shofar, from the mitzvah, from the, 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 the laws of Shofar, to the laws of Tshuva. The Rav has a 10 chapters on the law of Tshuva, the laws of repentance, and this is what he has to say. Even though the blowing of the shofar is a biblical 
is, is, is biblically prescribed. In other words, there is a Misa mitzvah, there is an action that has to take place, and that and and there is and that and that is the mitzvah. Remez Yeshbo. There is a hint in it, or there's a there's a fulfillment in it. Klomar, as if to say, Uru 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 Awaken sleepers, awaken. This is an alarm clock. Awaken sleepers. The kitsu mitardamaschem. So there is a fulfillment, and the fulfillment has something to do with awakening from sleep. What does this awakening from sleep mean? What what precisely are we are we dealing with? Well, the Rav taking taking his his cue from the Rambam says that the mitzvah of of Rosh Hashanah is what's known as Hirhur Tshuva, the awakening of Tshuva, not Tshuva itself. Very interestingly, if you look at the Rosh Hashanah Machzer and the Rosh Hashanah prayer book, you will see very, very, very few uh, references to sin. Almost no reference to sin. There is no vidui. There's no confession. How can you do tshuva? How can you do repentance if you don't refer to sin? So the Rav says, we're in the we're in a preliminary stage of tshuva. That preliminary stage is known as hero tshuva. Now, again, I've I've gone a little too long winded already in this particular <laughs> on this particular subject. So I I so the Rav then quotes two or three or four different places in the Talmud where Hirhur Tshuva plays a major role. Um, he refer, he, there's a dramatic story of, um, there's a dramatic story of, um, oh, the name escapes me immediately. Uh, there's a dramatic story of a Tana who is being burned at the stake. He's being burned at the stake and um, by, a, by a Roman um, uh, executioner. And the uh, he he's the this um, this rabbi who's being burned at the stake is covered with wool woolen tufts of wool that are soaked in water in order to prolong his pain during this execution. The executioner was so moved by the by his pain, he asked, "If I remove the tufts of wool." Will you guarantee me a place in the world to come? And this rabbi said, "Yes, I will. I will guarantee you a place in the world to come." Subsequently, he this executioner removed the tufts of wool, jumped into the fire himself, and immediately a voice from heaven came and said, "Both this rabbi and the executioner will both go into the world to come." This is a reflection of Hirachuva. There was no time for Vidui. There was no time for this executioner to go through um, the various steps of, uh, of repentance. It was a sudden, a sudden, amorphous, ill-defined urge that made him jump into the, into the fire. And yet, at the same time, he was considered a person who is uh, worthy to come to the to the. Um, to, to the world to come. Now, the Rav then takes this the idea further. He said, um, he relates this personal, a personal, um, uh, a personal anecdote uh, to illustrate the idea. And here's the, here are his words. 
On the seventh day of Pesach, 5727, which is 1967, I awoke from a fitful sleep. A thunderstorm was raging outside, and the wind and the rain blew angrily through the window of my room. Half awake, I quickly jumped to my feet and closed the window. I then thought to myself that my wife was sleeping downstairs in the sunroom next to the parlor, and I remembered that the window was left there open there as well. She could catch pneumonia, which in her weakened condition would be devastating. I ran downstairs, rushed into her room, and slammed the window shut. I then turned around to see whether she had awoken from the storm or if she was sleeping. I found the room empty, the couch where she slept neatly covered. In reality, she had passed away the previous month. The most tragic and frightening experience was the shock that I encountered in that half second when I turned from the window to find the room empty. I was certain that a few hours earlier I had been speaking with her then at about 10 o'clock, she had said goodnight and retired to her room. I could not understand why the room was empty. I thought to myself, I just spoke with her. I just said goodnight to her. Where is she? Then the Rav said the following, every Jew is obligated to sustain similar emotions on Rosh Hashanah. The required response to the chauffeur, which Maimonides refers to as awakening from slumber, is the abrupt tragic realization that the false assumptions upon which we build our lives have come crashing down before our eyes. We are jolted with the sudden awareness of the grievous extent to which our actions have alienated us from God. Amidst the panic of experience, we have neither the intellectual nor the emotional fortitude to adequately express remorse, resolve, confession, or even prayer. We find ourselves alone, bereft of our illusions, terrified and paralyzed before God. When you hear that story, all of a sudden, the sound of the chauffeur has a different, completely different meaning. Paralysis in front of God. All of a sudden, how, how, how distant we are from God and that sudden realization of that distance. It's, it's something that's remained with me. It remained with everybody who was at that lecture. And as a matter of fact, uh, that, that lecture is on the art publishing website. I'm sorry, the art publishing channel and YouTube, and you can hear the Rav himself say the story. That That's, in a nutshell, that in a nutshell is what the Rav does in a Chuba Drasha. He starts that, that, with a brisk yeah. and he ends with a very, very, very dramatic personal anecdote. And all of a sudden it all becomes clear. That's, that's very beautiful. It's it's transformative, and for me personally, I'll I'll take that to to the high holidays, and we'll have a transform experience as well. Something that you've alluded to, and maybe we can pick up on this theme a little bit, is that the Rav is doing a lot in his in his drushes and in his lectures. He's quoting Maimonides, as as you were saying before. Also, he's discussing different Talmudic stories. He's bringing different different anecdotes. He's crafting some form of of, of homiletics. In that sense, where does this book belong in the Jewish bookshelf? Should we put it alongside the Maimonides commentaries with the, the homiletics, with the other inspirational works? Where does this book belong on the, on the Jewish bookshelf? That's a very good question. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, uh, it combines everything. It combines everything. It's not, it's not categorized. I, I don't think you can categorize it. 
put it next to Maimonides. I mean, put it next to Maimonides. Put it put next to this, anything, all the other Soloveitchik books that might be in a bookshelf. Bookshelf. It's it's completely unique. It's completely unique. I I don't think there is there is you know uh, as I mentioned this uh, halakhic analysis. It could in one sense be on the on the shelf of Talmudic commentaries or Maimonidean commentaries. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned, there are these very very strong personal anecdotes which don't normally are not normally part of. Uh, these type of commentaries. So then it would be in a, in a bookshelf with homiletics. It combines both. Uh, you could put it on either. All right. So I'll, uh, maybe I'll switch it up. I'll put it one place, one time, another place, another <laughs> time. We can, we can make it work depending on, on the, the time of the year. You just mentioned, we also talked a little bit at the beginning that this is a book in written form. And there's also an accompanying website link someone can go to, to, to listen to the Rav speak, to hear his actual voice, to hear his language in Yiddish with subtitles. What does one gain from hearing these and, and seeing the subtitles and listening to his voice beyond just the written word that you've so beautifully put together? As compelling as the written word might be, it is no comparison with actually seeing him. Um, in the 1970s, I'm sorry to use this analogy. The Rove was, I would say, something of a rock star in the sense that whenever he gave a public lecture, there would be standing room only. There would be um, overflow crowd in adjacent rooms, many, many more than the room could typically fit. And this was patterned throughout every every time he spoke publicly. And this was the reason. the the Talmudic um, dictum is Enodoma Shmiyaliriya uh, that uh, you can't you can't compare or I, I can't compare the reading Amriyali Shmiya that you can't compare the the written word to actually hearing him hearing him and I actually superimposed some pictures of him speaking uh, in a in a lecture um, hearing him and and seeing him uh, to have, watching him deliver that that very dramatic story. Uh, as dramatic as it is to read it, to read it, to actually hear him say it, there was a collective shudder in the room. I was not there, but other people ex- described this to me. They said it was like this, this electric shock that went through the room. People were themselves were paralyzed after hearing it. Only that can only happen through hearing it, through actually hearing him say it. Now, um, this was on Yiddish, so you're reading subtitles. So some of, if, if you don't understand Yiddish, it's a little diluted. But I think the the emotion comes through. The inflections come through, and many of the Yiddish words people understand also. So I think I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, that that the I'm trying to as closely as possible duplicate what what that experience was, and I'm hoping that I was somewhat successful. I'd say so. I've, I've listened to some of them and seen them, and I think that it's it definitely adds an extra element and, and helps people be part of the experience more than they're able to in the written form. So I think it's really something people should check out and, and see for themselves. We've discussed a little bit about the shofar and then some of the ideas about repentance. Are there any other concepts, goings on of the high holidays that you want to elaborate upon? Give us a taste and idea of, of the way that the Rav understands them. Um, what the major theme, perhaps the major theme of Rosh Hashanah, is um, are three themes that appear in the Rosh Hashanah Machzer. 
um, in Musaf, the additional service, the additional Shmonesri service, Malchios, Zichronos, and Shofaros. Now, Malchios, loosely translated, has something to do with God being king. And there are 10 verses that you cite within that Shmon Esrei, which buttress this idea of God being king. Zichronos has something to do with remembrance, remembering covenants, remembering the, uh, uh, the forefathers, remembering us. And again, 10 verses that have to do with remembrance. And then there are shofros, 10 verses that have to do with shofar. Now, up until the Rav, that's all I understood. It was a fuzzy concept. It was fuzzy. I, I, beyond what I just explained to you, which is a very amorphous ideas, I, I did not understand what was the significance of these themes and what was the significance of the verses within each theme comes the Rav and explains what sovereignty means. He explains that uh, there are two types of sovereignty. There's a sovereignty that he has over nature, where we do not have free will. We, have, If someone jumps off a building, he's going to be a victim of gravity. On the other hand, if someone breaks the Sabbath, he has free will to break it or not break it, or not keep kosher. Um, how God's sovereignty has to teach us that just as nature responds to God every day through the laws of physics and chemistry and biology, we as Jews have to respond to the moral law in the same way. And the progression of verses has to do with that theme. And he goes through verse by verse explaining what uh, each, each verse means and how it relates to that theme. Zichronos, perhaps the most amorphous, the most difficult to understand, is that God remembers, when God judges, God judges based not only on a person's actions, but based on his background, based on his uh, DNA, based on his heredity, based on, his, um, based on the various uh, events that have happened in his life. Very, very complex and makes a judgment. And that's what he's doing on Rosh Hashanah. And again, each verse is a uh, progression explaining precisely how God goes through that, um, that process. Finally, shofaros. Shofaros don't only deal with shofar. Shofar has to do with divine revelation. The first few verses, which are verses from the, uh, from the Chumash, um, deal with this divine revelation at Sinai where the shofar played a major role. The last three verses, which are verses from the prophets, has to do with the future redemption, the future messianic redemption, where the shofar will again play a major role. The three middle verses, the the three verses actually in this case from Psalms, deal with how we have to understand God as a living reality, as how a hidden revelation in nature that we have to experience every day. We have to experience, we have to see God the same way, you know, um, God appeared at Sinai. We have an ability, we have an ability and we have the requirement to look at God as that much as a living, as a living and present reality. And that's what the three verses in the middle are to do with. 
Now, there's a much, much, much more about this. It's in the Rosh Hashanah Master, which I mentioned in the uh, in the introduction. We have uh, there are, in fact, if you remember, there on Rosh Hashanah there are two there are two days of Rosh Hashanah, and each day there's another Musaf. And the, the Rav had so much to say about it that there's another set of commentary. From the first day of the, the rep- repetition of Shimon Esrei in the first day and the second day, have two completely different sets of commentary saying, giving, giving, you know, so much to say about these particular uh, themes. But again, what was unique to me was I, he took these very fuzzy, amorphous, ununderstandable concepts and and turned it into a reality. He made it he, he, he understandable, and it's it's just again it's. it's to me, it was indescribable. The, the, the discovery, all of a sudden, this 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 liturgy makes sense. We're, we're not just saying, you know, random verses. These this 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 thing makes sense, and you know, I, I it, it, to me, it was just uh, it was a unique experience. It sounds very very unique. I want to zoom out a little bit and focus on on you and the editorial process. And then maybe we can also discuss a little bit about what Aura Publishing is. I think we've mentioned it a couple of times, but haven't really explained what it is, how it came about. There are a number of people in this, in the audience who are editing books, working on books, and they want to understand what the editorial process is like, if there are any tips or tricks. What can you say as an editor? And then what is Aura Publishing and, and how did that how did Or Publishing bring about this book and any of your other books as well? Um, I hope I don't get into too much trouble with this, but we'll, we'll try. Um, the Rav and the Rav's family were perfectionist. They were perfectionist. And th- up until the early 90s, very, very little was published by the Rav. He had some philosophical works, Lonely Men of Faith, Halachic Man in Hebrew, From There Shall You Seek, another philosophical work, in Hebrew, um, another one called Kol Dodido Fake, the, um, the Voice of My Beloved Knox, again in Hebrew. Very little, really, really, based on the corpus of all his public lectures, it was less than 0.01%, I would say. Um, now, Pinchas Peli, when he published Al Hachuva, did it on his own. He really did not have the permission of the Selovichik family. But after he did it, um, Rabbi Selovichik, I heard in a number of lectures, said that he did a great job, which is, there could not have been a better compliment because the Rav, again, as I mentioned, was so um, such a perfectionist. But simply because, because other people had not been publishing since, really since um, uh, Al Hachuva. There have been there have been a few other books, a few other summaries of, of lectures from Rabbi Bezidin, but really not much more. Um, and Al Hachuva affected me so greatly, and the Rav's the Rav in general affected me so greatly. And nobody, as I mentioned before, was coming up with a sequel to Al Hachuva. And I had heard these drashos on uh, on these tapes um, so many times and I had been so affected by it I had to I had to do it I had to publish it and I, I couldn't find a publishing house so I published it myself and that's that is our publishing 
I published, I published it myself. Now, publishing, self-publishing, even in those days before desktop publishing, is easier than you might think. Um, you um, you get it. You 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 write up the text. You you find an editor who, who can you know um, who can go over the uh, the language. Um, you uh, you you to get a typeset and. Uh, in those days, there were American binders, right? Today, very for Hebrew books or Jewish books, you actually every, almost every Hebrew and Jewish book that's published today is published in Israel because the printing costs are so much lower. But in those days, in the 1990s, there were still reasonable prices here in America. And um, I remember the first, uh, you know, I was I was very proud that you know when I was at the bindery and the, I saw the first book come out. It's a it's a very very nice uh, experience. Um, and because there was this such a great need, there was such a great vacuum, the, the rabbis were, 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 were desperate for more stuff from the Rav. And all of a sudden, you know, here, here comes another uh, a sequel to Halachuva, just in time for the uh, high holidays. Um, it was fairly popular. It was fairly popular. And uh, so I used the R publishing imprint for what I published subsequently called Drashot HaRav. Um, sub- after that, I got in touch with the uh, Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations, the OU, who had just set up a, um, a publishing arm called the OU Press, and they approached Art Scroll and said, we have this guy, Lustiger, who has come up with a commentary on the Machser for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, based on Rabbi Soloveitchik. Would you be interested in publishing it? Um, they expressed an interest in publishing it. They found this sponsor who gave a lot of money in order to uh, to have it published, and um, that's that's what happened there. Um, then come they came the Chumash, the OU Press published the Chumash, or they they were the, they they were the publisher. I I I should say I, I was the one who found the uh, the um, organization to do the typesetting and the binding, and uh, my son actually designed the cover of it, and uh, you know we did it, and uh, out came five volumes of the Chumash Mesorah Harav. Um, because there was because of the earlier book, the the original book before Hashem, which we're discussing today, came out you know so much in 1998. It was out of print already by 2003. I decided to re- reprint it myself, and um, that's that's what you see in front of you, and uh, that's what happened. The, the the process of publishing is not that difficult. It's not that it's even today with desktop publishing, it's much even it's much easier than than it was in those days, and. Um, uh, I would recommend, hardly recommend, if if there if you think there's an audience, there there is a price. I mean, there is a, an investment that has to be made, a significant investment. But when it comes to Rabbi Soloveitchik, I was reasonably certain that I would get the return on the investment. People would buy the books, and um, that that's that's what happened. That's that's I think it's helpful for people to to hear the background to understand about this book and and in general with publishing. I think that's a uh, a nice thing that people can, can take home and can do with it as they will, but I think it can give people some inspiration for what they might want to do. Zooming in on the book a little bit more, how do you envision the impact of this book on both those familiar and unfamiliar with Rabbi Soloveitchik's teachings? For those who are familiar with Rabbi Soloveitchik, the, these lectures are... They, I don't think they'll reveal anything about Rabbi Soloveitchik per se, but I think the compellingness of the lectures, especially around this time of year, makes a... Uh, makes makes an impression makes a strong impression 
and many people have told me that it helps them, and along with the Machzorim, it helps them in their own personal journey, in their own shuva process during this time of year. For those who are not familiar with Rabbi Soloveitchik, I think it somewhat it reduces the idea of brisker lamdas. People, it's it's a rarefied um, intellectual form, which is not widely understood or used outside of the yeshiva context. Uh, the Rub explains these things relatively simply. I find them compelling. Um, it depends on how much you believe in texts. In other words, when, when you're talking about subtle differences between a uh, one passage in the Maimonides or in another, you kind of have to a priori believe that there's significance to those differences. Now, it's very possible that someone would say, he used these. This he used. You know, he he happened to use this sentence there, and he happened to use that sentence there, and there's no more significance than that. I, a brisker, or certainly anyone in the yeshiva, would reject that that contention. Every word of the Rambam has significance and requires analysis. So it will um, introduce them to that type of analysis. But more importantly, this emotion, that story I told you about the Rav's wife. Um, I wanted to make an impression on everybody. I would like everyone, if possible, whoever whoever is going through a Rosh Hashanah, to hear that story and say, and, and go through their own lives and say, how have I relived that story? How do I relive that story today? Um, and how do I internalize that message, uh, this Rosh Hashanah? With someone who's unfamiliar with the Rav's teachings, is this a place you should start or are there other books, either from you or other ones, that they should start with and set? That's an interesting question. Um, it, it kind of depends on what they're interested in. If they're interested in Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, I would, yeah, I would start here. I would start with Halachuva. I certainly would uh, go to the synagogue with the uh, with these prayer books, with these with this, with these Marzorim. Um, the Rav was genius cubed. He was a genius in, as I mentioned, Talmudic analysis. He was a genius in philosophy, and he was a genius as a homiletician, as the, in the ability to give over a, uh, a moral message based on these texts. Um, most of us are not geniuses to the first power. He was a genius to the third power. Um, so what the pers- what, if, if someone is just uh, discovering Rabbi Soloveitchik, what he should first do is decide what he's more interested in. Is he interested in the philosophy? Is he interested in the homiletics? Or is he interested in the Talmudic analysis? Um, there are a set of books. Now, for- fortunately, there are it's a large set of books on each one of those um, dimensions of the Rav. Again, if it comes to the holidays, the, we have uh, for the high holidays, we have these books. Uh, the Rav has a, there's a Haggadah for, for Passover. Uh, for Pesach, which uh, which is excellent, uh, published by the OU Press. Um, there is a Kinos for Tisha B'Av. Uh, Kinos are a closed book. Kinos are very, very intricate, difficult language poems that even in English translation are really a closed book, really, really difficult. Even in translation, they're very, very, very hard to understand. Rabbi Soloveitchik, every Tisha B'Av, would uh, sit down on the ground in uh, Boston, in a synagogue in Boston, and um, expound for five, six, seven, eight hours on the keynotes every Tisha B'Av for at least a decade, maybe two decades. And um, 
that keynote book that, that, that some someone from the OE press has uh, taken the recordings of those um, of those uh, talks, or the or when the rub actually gave this commentary and um, made it a running commentary in the keynote book. I hardly recommend that. I, I don't think you can understand Kinos, you, these dirges of, of Tisha B'Av and Ninth of Av without that, without the Rav's commentary. In other words, it's a, to me, it's, it's again, another closed book without the Rav. Um, there is uh, the general book about the, the Dreshot that I have. Um, there is There are 10 books in what's known as the Torah's Harah Foundation. Uh, one on, there's a one book on Hanukkah called Days of Deliverance. There's another book on prayer. There are two, two books on prayer, um, all of which are, are excellent. What you, one can pick and choose based on the person's specific interest, and I think will be very inspired from what the Rev has to say on that particular topic. All right. Beautiful. That, that's, that's really great. And yeah, there's a lot to choose from. So there's just start somewhere and, and, and get going. I've taken up a lot of your time. On the New Books Network, we have a traditional closing question I'd love to ask you. What are you working on next? <laughs> Um, ongoing, I have these pu- these uh, recordings, these uh, these recordings on our publishing on the YouTube channel. Um, when I, whenever I find a new tape, I have a bunch of tapes that I now have access to that I did not have access to a few years ago. Whenever I find something that's I, I go wow, <laughs> if I if it has that wow factor, more often than not, it's going to end up on that YouTube uh, channel. It'll be in Yiddish and it'll be on the, on the YouTube channel. Um, in addition, uh, there has been a very, very nice response to the Chumash, to the um, to the uh, five books of Moses that I put out, um, that that commentary, and as I mentioned, I have many new tapes, many more not new tapes, but many more tapes that uh, were made available to me, and I have identified those tapes or those those recordings um, that deal with the Chumash that have not been dealt with in the present commentary. So I hope to come up with a. Uh, a yearbook, if you will, or perhaps a supplement to the Chumash based on these new, um, so another volume of the Chumash based on those new tapes. That's going to take a lot of work because most of it is uh, oral. I have to, uh, you know, transcribe these, uh, I'm talking maybe 200, you know, uh, parts of these tapes that, I, that I've uh, identified as related to the Chumash. I have to go through each one and write it up. It's going to take quite a few years, but that's that's a long-term goal that I have. All right, well, we can we can be back in touch and we can have a conversation <laughs> about that as well if, if you're interested. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Dr. Arnold Lustiger, author of Before Hashem, You Shall Be Purified, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik on the Days of Awe, published by Orr Publishing in 2022. Happy reading, my friends.